0: Today on the podcast, we are right on the precipice, probably, of a major change in how affirmative action works in higher education. We talk about why that is and about why I had to add the word probably into that last sentence. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Happy New Year. So my colleague Matt Schwartz had a pretty eventful December. First, he wrapped up a big four-part podcast series on the law behind affirmative action. And then he and his wife welcomed a brand new baby girl into their family. Congrats, Matt. But fortunately for us, just days before he went on paternity leave, I was able to grab Matt and pull him into our studio to talk about his affirmative action project. And you should definitely go check it out. It's on our sister podcast, Uncommon Law. Matt wanted to tackle this topic because, as you may have heard, the Supreme Court is currently hearing a pair of cases that could wipe out the legal basis that allows colleges to consider race in their admissions process. As Matt lays out in the podcast, the justices have been grappling with this issue since the 1970s and have never really been able to find much consensus. The 1978 Bakke decision, which made admissions quotas illegal but recognized diversity as a compelling state interest, was a 4-4-1 four, four, and one decision, with that one being Justice Lewis Powell. Then, a quarter century later, the court heard Grutter v. Bollinger on a narrow 5-4 decision. The court essentially affirmed Bakke, but within her opinion, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said, basically, affirmative actions should only exist as long as it's necessary, and not a moment longer.
1: It has been 25 years since Justice Powell first suggested approval of the use of race to further an interest in student body diversity in the context of higher education. We expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest that we approve today.
0: As Matt explains, that's turned out to be a really important line, whether or not Justice O'Connor meant it to be
1: intentional, non-intentional, dicta, a holding, a, <laughs> I don't know. Nobody really knows. It seems to me like it was dicta, like it was aspirational dicta meant to, you know, nudge society in the right direction. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if, If the Supreme Court has the power to set a specific 25-year countdown.
0: Right. But that's important now because now uh, with the cases before the court today, it just so happens that we're more or less 25 years after Grutter. We're
1: on board 20 years after, uh, 19 years after Grutter, but...
0: Pretty close. um,
1: We're pretty close.
0: So other than this kind of 25-year countdown, why is the court hearing this case today? Because I get the sense that... Nothing has really changed in terms of society in terms of racial relations in terms of higher education since Grutter was decided. It seems like the only thing that's really changed is the makeup of the court itself and the ideology of the justices. Is that a fair thing to to say?
1: Um your your cynicism is justified. Mm. Nothing is nothing has changed except for the makeup of the court. What really changed was President Donald Trump appointed three justices who are conservative who firmly believe that we think that race should not be used in this sort of situation, that the Equal Protection Clause is very black and white, pardon the pun, um, when it comes to how the government should be treating people, that, that the government should never consider race.
0: Well, let's talk about who is behind these cases. Uh, and specifically, let's talk about Edward Bloom, uh, who is an anti-affirmative action activist who uh as you lay out in your in your podcast um is really almost sort of pulling the strings behind the entire anti-affirmative action movement in this country. You went to his house uh and talked to him for what I gather was a pretty long time. Um what is his story? Why is he doing this? What is his background?
1: Well, first I wouldn't say that he is the one pulling all of the strings. Um because I'm sure a lot of people would be opposed to racial preferences regardless of whether Ed Bloom was doing anything or not. But he is definitely behind a lot of this litigation. Uh, He spends his life looking for the perfect plaintiff to try to further his cause. And his cause is getting rid of the use of race in public policy, including education. I tried to figure out what drives him to get up and start working at 4 30 in the morning every day and work for 12 hours when he doesn't need to he doesn't need the money uh he doesn't need any more infamy I, I was like ed why why do you care so much like why is this animating you so much and he just firmly believes it's wrong it seems really quite simple quite cut and dry he's he's driven by this desire. To rid the world of racial classifications, he believes that it does more harm than good. He likes to say that he is fighting for a restoration of the original principles of the civil rights movement.
0: And, and it's actually, it's I guess it's worth pointing out here that he he is he himself is white. Is, is that right? He is
1: he is white. He I think he's around seventy thereabouts, and he believes he is fighting for the original principles of the civil rights movement.
0: Well, let's uh, move away from Ed Bloom now and look to the Supreme Court itself. Um, You know, there were five hours of oral arguments. Did you hear anything during those five hours that would lead you to believe that Grutter uh, is not going to be overturned? I mean, with the makeup of the court, you would have to think that the case will be overturned. Did you hear anything that surprised you?
1: I heard some lines of questioning that seemed to me to connect the liberals and the conservatives. And I think that it would be possible, not likely, but possible to craft a ruling that could maybe make it five to four in in favor of keeping some form of affirmative action. And let me tell you what I mean. Justice Neil Gorsuch went on a lot about squash players.
0: Yes, he did. (laughs) Yeah. Let's assume that a very wealthy university could pay for everybody to go and still increase its endowment. It's a perpetual motion machine, Malcolm Gladwell called them. (laughs) Let's say if it just gave up preferences for donors' children, legacies, and squash athletes, okay? Or maybe those who row crew, all of which tend to favor predominantly white children. And it could achieve whatever it deemed racial diversity, Would it then be permitted to engage in race consciousness? Or in that circumstance, would you agree that uh, that would not be narrowly tailored?
1: And squash is relevant here because of this other case that came after Grutter, about 10 years after Grutter, called Fisher. But basically, it was a young woman named Abigail Fisher who did not get into the University of Texas. And the Supreme Court held by a vote of 7 to 1 that the lower court did not apply the proper standard. They did not apply strict scrutiny. They were too deferent to the university, who said, we did everything we could. Using race was the only way we could achieve diversity. And strict scrutiny requires that the court does a little bit more investigation to make sure that the college really tried every race-neutral method it could to achieve diversity before going directly to race. But what Fisher really stands for is the idea that you have to do everything you can that is a race neutral method of achieving diversity before explicitly looking at race. So now we get back to Neil Gorsuch, who said, who kept talking about how universities give points for
0: squash players. Well, I think what he was talking about there is that, you know, some people who play these kind of somewhat obscure sports get scholarships and, and they get preference and that, you know, if universities would just stop doing that, then the, I guess, stereotypically wealthy white squash players wouldn't get uh, an advantage. Was that what it was, what he was going at?
1: That is where he was going. He's trying to get at what Fisher was getting at, doing everything you can to have a race neutral method of achieving diversity. And if you stop giving preference to people who play stereotypically White, uh, you know, wealthy sports, then maybe you're going to start to achieve more of a diverse class just by not preferencing those sports that white people play.
0: But that's really interesting because that the, the premise behind that question is that Neil Gorsuch thinks that diversity is a worthy goal that should be, be that universities should strive for. Which I don't think is a given. I don't know if every justice, especially the justices on the right, really think that. You know, or, I mean, certainly Justice Thomas very explicitly said, "I don't know what diversity is. I don't think it's a meaningless term." I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, it seems to mean everything for everyone.
1: Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that it. It implies that he necessarily believes that diversity is a worthy goal, but, but simply if we're starting from precedent, if we're starting from the this, this state of the law, which says that diversity is a worthy goal, but that you have to use race neutral means to achieve it first, wouldn't one of those means be stopping the points for squash players? Or stopping the points for legacy, for if you, if your family went in. And I think that if you were going to try to build an alliance between the conservatives and the liberals, this is where you would do it. Because I guarantee you that uh, the liberals would probably be okay with, with getting rid of legacy points. So I can imagine Chief Justice Roberts, eager to preserve the legitimacy of the court, pushing for some sort of alliance with the liberal wing. So so we could maybe see Robert Scorsese, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson all banding together if, if they wanted to preserve this Grutter precedent that holds that diversity is a compelling interest, but that you have to use race-neutral means first. I don't think that's going to happen. But it's the best that the court can, it's the best that supporters of affirmative action can hope for.
0: So, Matt, if that does happen and, you know, the six to three ruling that you predicted does come to pass, what does that mean? What what do you think that means for the future of higher education in this country?
1: If the Supreme Court rules that you cannot take race into account because it's a violation of equal protection, first of all, I still think that college admissions officers will always... Take race into account in some form, even if it's more in, in the form of winks and nods. I can imagine admissions officers being told you cannot give anyone credit for their race, right. but you can give them points for determination in the face of adversity. So then, if you get an essay with somebody writing about the discrimination that they've faced over the years and how they got past it, well, like, are you considering their race or are you just rewarding grit and perseverance? So I just think it's impossible if somebody writes an essay that has to that, that discusses their their heritage or that the discrimination they have faced, it's impossible to just ignore that because it's easy for white justices to say race doesn't matter. but to a lot of students their race is such a fundamental part of who they are. so so I think that they'll still take race into account a little bit in the form of winks and nods or just subconsciously. But but yeah, ultimately, the diversity numbers will drop. We've seen this in the states that have already banned affirmative action. Um, the University of Michigan filed a basically frantic amicus brief during the, the most recent cases saying they've tried everything. They've tried everything more outreach. They've tried special scholarships, uh, and it's not working, and their diversity numbers have plummeted. I think ultimately what this will show is what people who are against affirmative action have long said to each other, that race-conscious admissions, in their opinion, is is a band-aid that is trying to fix a problem that really should be dealt with at the lower levels. So we're ultimately going to have to address why are some people not getting, not achieving the same test scores and grades as others. And this is going to, I think, force a, a sort of reckoning in which if you cannot look at race at the higher levels, perhaps our policymakers uh, and educators are going to have a renewed focus on how do we increase the education for everybody at the the lower levels.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that was uh, Matt Schwartz talking about affirmative action in the Supreme Court. Matt, thank you for joining it's, us. It is a pleasure to be here. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Saturn. Our executive producer is Josh Block. Check out our website for more coverage. That website is news.bloomberglaw.com. And if you want to get Matt a congratulatory present, go check out his affirmative action series over at the Uncommon Law Podcast. It's really great. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. In a global tax landscape that changes by the day, it's what you don't know that can leave you exposed. At Bloomberg Tax, we provide market-leading intelligence and practical applications to help tax professionals work smarter, faster, and more accurately. Our solutions provide the insights you need for game-changing outcomes. To revolutionize your performance in real time, the difference is Bloomberg Tax. Learn more at pro.bloombergtax.com.